friends, and welcome to episode four of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. Thank you so much for coming back to spend some of your precious time with us. This has been a lot of fun for me because we do exactly what I set out to do here, have in-depth conversations with people that I know who have lived really unique, all-in, live-in-the-moment kind of lives. And my next guest, Johnny Hayes, is a true original. Johnny is a hustler. He always lands on his feet. His aim may have been misguided in the early days. In fact, during his high school days, he was involved in a business-moving contraband product to a city in northern Canada. He was still high school age, but he was making sometimes upwards to ten dollars to $30,000 a day. It became so hard to conceal the amount of money that Johnny was bringing in that he decided to tell his mother it was income from a phone sex business he was running instead, and he was still in high school. But things went pear-shaped and he decided to go back to school, which... Turned out to be a good idea. And that's where my story and Johnny's begin to share the same road for a stretch. Johnny's curiosity and passion for new projects has taken him to some really interesting places. And on one dark night, it almost got him killed. We'll talk about that experience at length during this show. Johnny's talent has carried him a long way. Today, he tours the world with some of the biggest artists in the world, producing their in arena big screen video shows. It's a life he is well-suited for and that he really loves. So get ready for a peek behind the giant showbiz curtain as I chat with my good buddy, Johnny Hayes. And make sure to stay tuned after my chat with Johnny for the fourth installment of a little thing we like to call... Please don't try this at home. This week's story is presented by my buddy and fellow broadcasting school alumnus, Richard Garner. Richard has always had a knack for finding a way to get to see the big game through the back door. This is one of those stories. So stay tuned for that, but now it's time for my chat with my buddy, Johnny Hayes, the Road Warrior. Hey, Johnny, how you doing, man? Good, Dave. How are you? Good, good. It's been a little while since we've seen each other. Uh, sometime last year, maybe. Yeah, last year. I guess you were you were touring with. Uh, who were you touring with? Was it Drake? Uh, I was with Drake last year, but I think when I came to see you last, I was with Adam Sandler. Maybe no, wasn't oh, it? Yes, yes, it was. That's right. Yes. That was yeah. a great show. Yeah. So um, yeah, we we go back away a bit. Uh, we met in 1994, first year of television broadcasting program at uh, Algonquin College. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so you you were we were chatting the other day, and you were telling me um, I realized that you'd done some work before, but you how many how many years of uh, work did you do for Skyline slash Rogers, which was a you know local uh, public access station in Ottawa? I think, uh, well, I started there when I was 16, late 16, uh, uh, through a co-op program at Ridgemont High School. I went to school in the morning and uh, got to go to work in the afternoon. And they offered, would you like to go to Rogers, which I'd never even heard the name before. I get 
they had just bought Skyline Television like like a week before or something like that. And uh, so I got that opportunity to go there and and discovered community television and um, production and camera operation and uh, et cetera. And, and uh, turns out that's who I was and, and fell in love with it, you know, immediately. Yeah, I mean, that's really the way to do yeah. it if you're going to get into broadcasting you know, those opportunities are still out there and you get to show up there and kind of do whatever you want often, right? Do camera yeah, work. You, you know, you, whether you want to or not, sometimes you don't want to, but you have to do everything, uh, right. literally, you know, or every position at some time or another, uh, mostly volunteer-based uh, it was, you know? So you were working there for, for a bunch of years and then uh, what made you shift gears and decide that you were going to go to school? Well, you know, it was through high school and then um, my high school went on strike actually that year and I did a little hiatus with a little uh, side project I had going on and, and uh, by the time school went back in in uh, midsummer, I was in a little personal business ad- adventure that was making a lot more money than current high school was. And so I decided to stick with that. And, um, you were a smuggler. Yeah. So yeah, I used to, uh, fly around and dip, that kind of stuff. Anyway, move contraband. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We are contraband riders. Money moving contraband in those days. Tens of thousand dollars a week. And it just kind of came off the rails and went bad at one point. And uh, I went back to uh, Ottawa and rolled up and said, Mom, I think I'm going to go to college. Yeah. And uh, so I applied for the television broadcasting school at Algonquin. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't graduated high school, but I got in on my merit because I had volunteered so many hours, you know, through the co-op program, then thousands of hours on top of it doing all the productions there. And uh, so I got into college based on that, and uh, that's what sent me into television broadcasting where I met you at, at Algonquin. Yeah, what did you think of that? I liked it, really. You know, I mean, I had quite, a, like I said, you know, uh, three, four solid years of, of production experience when I got there. So there were some redundant things, but there were a lot of things that I would have never been exposed to. and. Uh, right. A lot of different uh, opportunities, I thought, came out of it, you know? Yeah. Well, you ended up getting a placement out of it, right? I did. I, I ended up becoming the associate producer for the Lynx Baseball in the last semester through college, but which I was, you know, for the last four years, it was co- my time at Rogers coincided with the timing of the Ottawa Lynx. And yeah, when I got that placement... Uh, was the year they won their World Series in AAA, you know? They were the farm team for uh, the Montreal Expos at the time, right? Right. Yeah, I remember that because I worked the corporate boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you worked with my buddy Pablo, too. Pablo worked there. Serving beer and snacks and stuff to the crowds in the corporate boxes. Actually, the thing I remember most about that year was that I was working one night and I walked into the corporate box and nobody was watching the game and and the team was hot right they were on their way to championship and uh, nobody was watching the game in any of the corporate boxes uh, because uh, OJ was uh, driving down the freeway in his Bronco 100% I was out at the truck uh, <laughs> yeah I was out at the truck at the broadcast truck beside the stadium uh, watching it on the truck the same thing as as you were I know exactly where I was 
What a crazy scenario that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, so that's 1994. So you work, uh, you work for, uh, you work for AAA baseball or doing the camera work for them for a few years. Yeah. Uh, camera and then producing and directing it. And, um, and then right at the end of it, we had a guy approach us with a new aerial camera system he'd created uh, on a, uh, helium filled aerostat, which is like a blimp, right. a stationary, a stationary blimp. Yeah. And, um, it was a gyro stabilized mount he had made and he wanted to, you know, implement it in real world scenario and yeah, local access television. You don't really get that aerial shot too often back then. And anyway, now you can do it with the drone any day of the week, but uh, I jumped at the opportunity. Of course you can bring your aerial into our show. Let's do it. You know? So he came in and, and we used it, uh, during that run, a uh, couple shows with it, mm-hmm. and uh, we got along. And I saw the opportunity with it and loved it, and um, ended up getting hired uh, on as the first employee with the company. Right, and, right. Uh, you were off. Yeah, we finished up uh, Lynx Baseball, and I went right away with them to uh, the Disney Open, right. PGA Golf, the Texas Open, and then a trial for the Olympics in Atlanta, and a figure skating event in Central Park Woolman Rink. Right. I remember you doing MTV beach parties too. And didn't you do NASCAR? Anything from the air that we could, you know, make our way and we, we tried it and, uh, yeah, that's a lot of, uh, amazing new experiences, like right at the top of your career. And didn't you get a huge shot of, uh, Tiger Woods in 2001 when he won the three opens in the year? Right. Uh, at the Canadian Open, there, he was on 17, hitting around a corner to the to the green, and the green cameras couldn't see him, and his cameras on the fairway couldn't see the hole, so um, they had to go to the aerial for it, and uh-huh. uh, it was me shooting it at the time, and he ended up winning the tournament. He won the three opens. They had yeah. to take the aerial shot for it, and... and uh, if you go on ESPN or YouTube, anything, type in Tiger Woods' 10 best shots, it's yeah. his number one shot on there. Yeah, yeah. So it's... Uh, Were you really kind of nervous on the, on, the, on the controls, making sure that you followed it properly and got the well, whole thing? Well, I stayed a little wider than I would have normally, for sure. Yeah. It was foggy and uh, low cloud cover and raining, and uh, so it was dark. And yeah. following a golf ball was uh, difficult. I do remember thinking that, that... Better make sure I get this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you got that on your resume. Sure. Yeah. And then, so how long do you do the, uh, the tether, call it tether cam, right? They call it mm-hmm. tether cam yeah. systems. Uh, yeah. I stayed with them until, uh, I guess that was 95 or 94, 95 was kind of when I started with them till, uh, well, 2001, I did that <laughs> tournament in, uh, Toronto, but I was kind of a contractor at that point. I had left the company uh, and started a f- digital photography company in Florida with with my brother. That was pretty cool, though, too, because you you guys were one of the first companies around to with it come up with the idea that you could digitally shoot all the photos and parents could pick them out right there. Right? Is that how it worked? Yeah, yeah. We were doing uh, printing, uh, uh, you know, right there on the spot with thermal printers, dye sublimation thermal printers, and. So you could put yourself on the cover of a magazine or print out trading cards or uh, all sorts of things with that. And 
That was a couple years. Uh, that would have been like the late 90s, you know, 98, 99-ish. Uh, 98, right. 99, really, because, uh, you know, we were doing that. We, we had a contract with Kawasaki USA. We were doing all their motorcycle shows around the country. Cool. Uh, yeah, and that's where I met the Star Boys. Right, right. I remember seeing their DVDs at like the motorcycle shows. Yeah. Well, the very first one, they kind of homemade it themselves. Right. And uh, I was working for Kawasaki and I was just walking around the bike show and I saw it at the little TV at a little um, motorcycle shop booth. Uh, this crazy, crazy stuff happening on, on video with hardcore music playing. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I've been on a bike since I was eight years old and, you know, asked for one since I was born. and music and video and everything of all the sort together it just mad probably popped my mind you know and yeah well for the people who, who are listening who don't know what we're talking about we're talking about uh these guys are essentially uh motocross uh stunt riders right uh street street motorcycles was the premise uh behind it you know what i mean yeah all wheelies and stoppies and burnouts and through traffic and stuff often and uh yeah the name of the video series was ftp and um f the police yeah exactly yeah and uh so it was hardcore as, as heck and then all of a sudden these guys came rolling up and they were all like it was like uh evil knievel and and motley crew were the same person craziest things you've ever seen in your life nobody crazier ever after that they did tours right and they do like the motorcycle shows and do stunt, stunts in front of people and stuff yeah, you know, it spawned an industry, uh, both stunt industry and a lot of different businesses came about because of it. And, you know, a lot of people have gone on to do a lot of things from it, you know, and and uh, it was it was viral before viral. And it was a, you know, a big little community and it was worldwide and fans everywhere. And uh, it really blew up into a lot more than you would expect. and. Um, yeah, and so we made we made crazy videos for, you know, five or six years and sold the DVDs around the world. And uh, the craziest thing I'll tell you right now, I'm in COVID lockdown right now. Yeah. And I had a conversation yesterday. They, they broke up like the Beatles and they right. weren't talking. And like, I mean, a couple of them have, have, have their own churches. One of them is a minister who wheelies for God in prisons. Like the story is still going. And basically really? yesterday, yeah, they haven't been together in a long time. They haven't talked to each other in 10 years, some of them. Mm. And I had a conversation with all three yesterday and said, we should, have you seen that Tiger King, whatever thing on thing? I have. Everybody's locked down and everybody needs content. Guess what? I'm doing a documentary on them. Yeah, we decided sure. to do it yesterday, and I'm leaving for Ohio tomorrow. We got the scoop here. That'd be great. That is it right here. It just happened. I'm writing the script while I'm sitting here in front of you. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> Drops yeah. It. yeah. That'd be fun to watch for sure. It's exciting, and, and it hopefully would be good and healing, I guess you might say, for everybody, and, uh, and just an interesting project. I was supposed to be on tour this year. Right now, I would have never been home. And like I said, being locked down, uh, all sorts of things happen. And this is what just happened. Cool. Well, I'd want to see that one for sure. And, and, the, and the cool thing is you already, you already own or you already produced all the, all the archival footage. So, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, we're done. We're going to do some interviews and uh, we're going to get all the fans and all the people inspired and everybody we can to, you know, come and talk like, you know, it, it really crosses genres, you know. Cool. The Star Boys documentary. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be interesting. But yeah, when it ended it, uh, you know, just the, 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 the digital came around and um, the whole, whole world turned on a dime with the internet and oh, right, social yeah. media and stuff like that kind of sprung out of it. And, you know, we were viral on social media before it began, I guess, almost to a certain degree. Uh, and, you know, had the platforms that are around now been then, mm-hmm. uh, it would be different. I mean, yeah. I suppose they would all be in jail long ago as well. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, maybe a lot more people would have known about it. They would have been the biggest thing on the planet. Like, it just, it just, and it, it just, it just self-destructed kind of in the wrong way at the wrong time, at the wrong times every time, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, something like that certainly isn't made to last. No, it was, it was firecrackers pretty volatile personalities and there's only so much you can do to your body. Yeah. 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 It went, it went, went, it went deep as it can go. It went as hardcore as you could ever imagine. You can't even imagine some of it. So how do you end up in Akron? Through them. I met them at a bike show in Cleveland when I was doing that Kawasaki photography and I met them there. And I met the one guy, Kevin, and I said, hey, yeah. And it was like we were brothers the first second we met. And I said, I live in Daytona. If you're coming down for bike week, give me a call. And so, like, that was in January. And about a month later, right before bike week, I get a call. He's like, hey, it's Kevin from Star Boys. You know, he's like, yeah, we're coming down. Mind if we stay there? I'm like, sure. And so literally 15 guys showed up. And half of them ended up staying at my place and just bombed it. and. Uh, we went out and tore apart Daytona and, uh, we ended up, you know, hitting it off and made a deal that right then to make videos and created a company. And, uh, and it was the four of us at the time, three of them and me. And, uh, that was when we started uh, going ahead with FTP two. The first one was called FTP that I wasn't involved in. And so FTP2 was my first endeavor with them. So you wrap up the, um, the Star Boys thing. Eventually it comes to an end. And then you, you've, you, you've bought a place in, uh, in, uh, in Akron at that point, right? So you stick around. Yeah, I was married at the time and, uh, and had a house. And so then I, you know, I was just buying and selling stuff like I kind of always do. I kind of sport buy and sell as a... Mm-hmm. The, way, the way I do it. Mm-hmm. And eBay had just come around and I was buying and selling a lot of stuff. And so then I had a shop and then I decided to open the shop to the public and sell for people. It was called eBlaze. And, uh, and then it just got so busy with like, it became like a pawn shop almost. And it was, right. I didn't really want to be there anymore. So I sold the whole business and then I bought a live music bar. You know, the Star Boys had it before, and then they, there was a big, long deal, and then it was called Star Bar when they bought it, and then I bought it and renamed it uh, Barfly. Right. And, uh, was it kind of a punk bar? It was just a live music bar. You know, it was really cool. It was full of Akron, crazy people. 
Yeah. And, um, and so then uh, they set us up, the friggin' local liquor board set us up on a night and sent in an underage person and she showed fake ID. <laughs> they raided the place, gave her, you know, the bartenders got charged and we got charged uh, as the owner, or I did. And, and uh-huh. so it was my buddy who was the bartender. He got charged criminally for it. Wow. It was ridiculous. You know, I'm like, we're just trying to make it and they're trying to put yeah. us out of business. So, so I sold that business pretty quickly also. Yeah. And, uh, then shortly after I bought a pizza shop, I had really no, no aspirations for it. Just, it was a good deal on a business that I knew if I got it going, I could sell it for more, you know? And so I bought it. And, uh, eight weeks later, my manager was working. He was sick, called me, he said he was sick. Could I take over? And so I went in and ended up getting robbed. And, uh, and then I shot and killed the guy. And that was it. <laughs> I mean, in, in a few words, that was it. It was over. Yeah, I remember we chatted right after that happened. And I'm like, it was a crazy thing. The So how did that, that starts because you... Uh, so you buy the place and, and somebody comes comes by and tells you that the place is, was the police, right? They told you that the, the place had already been held up a bunch of times. You, you should probably get yourself a gun, right? Uh, yeah, well, I had a gun actually from, from the bar. I had my concealed carry permit because, yeah. you know, I used to leave the bar at night, mm-hmm. money from the cash and everything. And uh, So, yeah, I had it. And then uh, first police officer I saw pulling the parking lot ever I ran out gave him a piece of pizza and we yeah. ended up becoming friends and they'd come in and and they told us you know this place had been robbed four times in the two years before I owned it and yeah it most likely will be robbed just be yeah. ready just be ready yeah um literally that's what he said Akron it was a pretty tough town right it's like the wild west yeah is it one of the cities that's probably lost a lot of industrial work, right? A lot of plant work and stuff like that. So there's no ton of work, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely part of the rubber belt, you know, and all a lot of that manufacturing original, that work is gone for sure long ago. And, but the people are just like, it's just a different group of people. My friend, they're, they're, uh, they're the most like, uh, it's hard to even describe. You can't say liberal because they're not liberal, but right. lib- they live liberally. Like they don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like they'll, they just. Uh, they're libertarian. Yeah, for sure. Liberty, man. Liberty, yeah. I'm going to do what the heck I want, you know? So that's a group that you'd gotten in with. Sure. Yeah. When I got to Akron, Ohio, I, I'm born in Canada, so I'm. I'm probably not political, Mm. but when I got to Ohio, I'm like, damn, I think I might be a Republican. (laughs) And then when I moved to California, I'm like, man, I'm pretty sure I'm a a Democrat. This is, yeah, Yeah. I'm a Democrat for sure, you know? And nowadays it's like, I'm I'm none of the above, you know? Both have, both are challenged right now for sure. It's unfortunate to us against them, but. Let's go back to the evening of the shooting. One of the things that you had mentioned to me before was that the gunman who came in that evening was wearing a balaclava, or as you call it, a ski mask. And the balaclava had eye holes. And um, when the gunman moved, the balaclava was moving, so sometimes it was difficult for him to see. And you were mentioning to me that that was one of the things 
that saved you? Well, yeah, he was trying to pull the mask down and, and I heard, you know, some robbery, some robbery. And I look over and pulling down an orange ski mask, trying to get the eyes into it. Mm-hmm. And he had a shotgun and, uh, uh, I was like, that's not real. And he's like, it's a fucking robbery. It's a fucking robbery. Give me money. And, uh, so I said, okay. And I scooted up to the cash drawer and opened it up. And there's like a half wall beside me that my shoulder leans against. And he's right beside me on the other side of the counter. Yeah. And there's a hundred dollar bill on the top. And I threw the hundred to the side. Cause I just like, I was too cheap. I didn't want to get, that was the first time I opened the drawer. I even had been there all day. I'd only been there 10 minutes. And, uh, so I reached in, gave him the twenties, you know, he's like, give me the fucking money. And I give him the twenties and he leans over, sees, I see the rest of that fucking money. Give me the money and pushes the gun against my head. And so I, I give him, I grab the tens, give him the tens. And I have a gun under my shirt on my hip. And, uh, it was like, nah, no, not yet. You know, you feel the gun at your temple and it's, it's a different situation. And, uh, so they leaned over, pushed it again, give me the fucking money, you know? And so I grabbed the fives and as soon as I handed the fives to him, I drew my gun and pop, 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 shot him. He went down, he got back up, pop, 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 shot him again. Yeah. And he turned around, dropped all the money and ran out, ran down the street and collapsed. What's the time period on this? How, how quickly does this happen? Oh, I don't know. Shit. 30 seconds maybe or less than that. I don't know. Like I, I'd got there and as soon as my buddy left that worked there, he was sick. The, the lady kind of came in and ordered stromboli and fries. And I put her at the end of the counter. She was watching the Cavs game. And then, you know, a minute later, this kid walked in. And so I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure how long it took, but definitely under a minute. Uh, yeah, that was it. He ran out. I ran around the front, grabbed all the money he dropped, came back in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, called 911. And in, in less than a minute, you got to make life-changing decisions. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the time in Akron, they were, people were calling, ordering pizza to rob the delivery man of whatever money he had. Right. It was like a trend. And, and people, people were carjacking guys, and then they'd give them the car, and they'd still shoot them in the head, like, frequently and recently right around there at that time. So again, being knowing I was going to be robbed and knowing that they, you know, it's frequently happening that if you're getting a gun put to your head, you're dying yep. more than not. And yep. I had a gun on my temple. And so when that cold steel hit my skin, that was the time I made the decision. And that was it. You know what I mean? Like it was, yeah, I, I I guess I decided then. So, yeah, yeah. I remember asking you after if you'd do anything different. If you, you're like, no, man, that I just that was it. I, that's, I knew that's what I had to do. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it it is what it is. But I didn't put myself. You know, he he created that situation. I was there, and again, if he had wanted a piece of pizza, he could have asked or a job or whatever. Yeah. You know. It, you got a better chance asking than putting a gun to somebody's head. Yeah. Unfortunately, at that time. Yeah. But uh, the way it all went down was you you ended up being made uh, 
a big hero in this situation, right? You were made what, the NRA man of the day or something? Uh, I think, yeah, something like that. There was definitely, you know, uh, the NRA community rallied around me yeah. because I was a member and, you know, I have my concealed carry permit. I never knew anybody or, or was even involved in any way beyond buying the membership. And, uh, yeah, people, uh, people really rally around, you know, from all walks of life from the mayor to, uh, to just neighbors around there and, and came mm-hmm. in and people came and gave me guns and uh, I heard the police have your gun and here you can have this one and right. people sending money from all over the country, actually, uh, it just in envelopes like here, you know, get your shop going and, uh, didn't people start ordering pizzas from all over the place too, right? Yeah, yeah. The local support, we went from like three employees to, you know, 10 employees overnight. And uh, and we were busy for, for, for a time right right there. And, you know. How much longer do you do it after after the shooting? How, how much longer did you run business before you decided? Well, yeah. again, I bought it to sell it and it was booming there for uh, uh, right not long after. And so I ended up the, the same manager who, uh, called in sick that night that I got robbed. Uh, I sold him the whole shop, him and his dad. And, uh, so it was, a you know, I, I think we started February 1st. I got robbed April 1st. I got robbed March 31st. And, uh, I sold it by, uh, by the end of April, maybe. Yeah. So I sold it within four weeks. Uh, I think after getting robbed, or maybe two months. I don't know exactly what it was, but what did you do next? Does that you go back to California? Uh, well, I think in that summer, yeah, I had just well, I don't know what I was doing there, but um, in that was '09, and then the fall of '09, I uh, I did come visit some friends out here in California, and um, I went back to Akron, and my one friend from out here uh, called me and said how much camera experience do you have? How much handheld experience do you have? I said, a lot. He said, if I put you on a plane, can you fly to Toronto tomorrow? <laughs> I said, sure, Joe Battle. And I actually said, that, no. Uh, if uh, He said, if I put you on a plane, could you come tomorrow and, and uh, start this tour with us? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I'll get in the truck and drive there tonight. At the time, it was for a tour with an artist named Maxwell. I didn't know at the time, but he was coming back for, for, for a tour, and they needed to add a camera operator. So I came in as a handheld camera operator, jumped, drove to Toronto, got there for loadout, loaded out. Uh, first show was in Toronto. We loaded in there, Canada Center. We played the show. The engineer quit the day of the show. We got a new guy in who's still one of my best friends, a new guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did the show in Toronto. And then the next show was in Detroit. And so I drove my truck beside the bus the next morning to Detroit. I had somebody come from Ohio, pick up my truck and bring it back to Ohio. And I did the tour. And uh, and then from there, uh, boom. You don't seem to apply for anything. You just seem to like uh, you, you run into people. You have these chance meetings with people who become pivotal in your life. And all of a sudden you're on a new thing. I guess. Yeah. I don't remember the last job application I went for. No. When did I last go for a job? Let me check. Yeah. I mean, I don't do that either, but I, I, every once in a while, I just, I hear this great, you know, that's why I wanted to talk to you. 
I don't know if I've had a job interview. Have I? I don't even know if I've ever had a job interview. David, I'm swear <laughs> I'm trying to think of it right now. I don't think I've had a job interview. Yeah, they're overrated. Yeah. Yeah, I've never had one. You don't ever go to an HR department, sit down and say, you know, they're like, well, what is it exactly you're looking for? Like, I want to fucking tour with a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never, I've never been to. I think I've walked past an HR department before, but I've never been in one. Yeah. I can barely spell HR. <laughs> nice. Uh, so you do Maxwell and then it's just on. Yeah. Uh, shortly after I did Maxwell, I got an offer to do camera work replacing a guy on Guns N' Roses. And so I went and did a quick Canadian, half of the Canadian tour in, in, uh, with Guns N' Roses. And those are still the legendary days of, of Axel waiting hours and hours and hours before he goes on stage, right? Yeah. What do you, Does anybody know what that's all about? Is it stage fright or do you like, do you know, or can you, I mean, he's changed that. He's, he's gotten kind of. Yeah. Well, the promoters wouldn't buy the shows without promise of, of not having that happen nowadays, but um, he just, out of, I mean, and I don't have a better explanation other than that's the way he does it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I've been with other guys in the last few years that were late too, and they'd show up, they'd be 45 minutes late. They're like, well, their hotel was 30 minutes away. They're like, right. yeah. and I'm like, yeah, well, you got, that means you got to leave at least 35 minutes ago. You know what I mean? Like, it's not hard to do the math. Yeah. You just got to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's many ways to make it happen. It's everybody else seems to make it to work on time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so you go from doing camera work to eventually directing the, the shows, right? Well, right after that Guns N' Roses thing, I sent a message to the right guy at the right time. And I said, by the way, because I was getting some compliments, as a matter of fact, of my camera work. And yep. uh, I said, I'm as good a director as I am a camera operator. I sent an email. Yeah. And two weeks later, I got a call and said, would you like to be a director for the Keith Urban summer tour? It's just a one camera thing mixing with a little content. Right. And I pulled over, did a backflip and said, yes, I would love to. <laughs> well, I knew your life had changed because you're not a boasty guy on social media or anything like that. But you're like, I get in touch with you and I'm like, what's going on? It's Christmas. It's like. Oh, I'm hanging out with Sully and uh, Jessica Simpson and her husband and some other people. I'm like, holy shit, this guy's life has changed. Well, that was Sully. He, his, uh, he used to work for her, and she sang at his wedding, and uh, he had a bigger connection with them back then. Yeah, but your life was changing in a big way at, at this point. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Sure. And you were, well, talk to me. I, it's real, you know, when you come into town, it's cool. You're always super gracious and you invite me and be out and we get to go backstage and we've checked out the, the, uh, the touring boxes and all that. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting lifestyle. I don't, th I don't know if I'd be able to do that. It's, it can be hard, but you live with, on a boat. Well, yeah, but no, I don't live on a boat with 20 other guys. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Let's break this down a few different ways, because I think this is really interesting stuff for our audience. First of all, give me give me like a sort of a top 10 of the the biggest artists that you've gotten a chance to tour with over the past decade. It's pretty, a pretty, pretty interesting list. 
Well, I work for Drake right now that I don't think there's too many with a bigger name than him probably mm-hmm. right now. Last fall, Chris Brown, uh, summer, Adam Sandler, spring, Drake. Uh, the previous year was Drake. Uh, do a bunch of like, you know, um, did a few Nitro Circus Lives and ASCAP Awards and a few different things here and there and I can fit it in and it works out. And uh, Beaver and uh, Marino Maroon 5 and Keith Urban and uh, John Fogarty and... Beyonce, didn't you? Yeah, I did a, uh, some shows when she came back in, in Las Vegas or uh, Atlantic City. Yeah, I remember asking you about who, who some of your favorite artists were and you told me that that Beyonce was one of the hardest working people you had seen. She was, she did, uh, she had three full run throughs in the day time in full heels and such, just crushing it. And, uh, she had just had her, I think it was her first baby, I, I believe. And, uh, she just kept going. She's killing it and, and get it right and get it right and get it right. And then did the show at night. So she did four shows that day. Yeah, nobody does that. And, and it, not too many, I can tell you. Well, just saying all tours are fun, you know what I mean, in a lot of ways. And, and you, certainly now you're really grown to realize what you're missing. But Absolutely. Like you said, you're not geared to be on the bus with 12 people and be going city to city. I am exactly perfectly suited for it, and that's what I love to do. Well, I'm not saying I'm not geared for it, but it would, it would be difficult to be a married person. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to do that, but I don't know how long I could do it for. So what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, show day is, you know, dep- I mean, depends on the tour. Uh, lately, as they get bigger and bigger, sometimes they require load-in days even. Sometimes the building's not available, so like, Somebody else will do a concert the night before and they'll load out and they'll be done at three in the morning and we'll be sitting outside with the buses running Yeah, and go in and chalk the floor and, and start. Sometimes a, a day could start at 4 a.m. and the riggers are in there and setting all the points and marking for all the motors to hang to lift up all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they do that for a couple of hours, even if, it, if it's a, you know, a little smaller show and starts at seven. Same procedure, mark the floor, put all the chain motors up, yeah. all the equipment starts rolling in, and uh, all the departments are, you know, slinging their stuff, putting trust together, putting staging together, uh, you know, wiring up their video equipments, lighting racks, uh, whatever it might be. And everybody's in their own little world doing up, making up their own little world for the day. Mm-hmm. Um Generally, day-to-day, most times you can replicate what you have to do. You know, my my little area is going to look the same for the most part. It's just going to be in a different room or a different part of the world or whatever. How often do you actually get to get a good night's sleep? Well, pretty much every night, really. I mean, depends what you call a good night's sleep. But, you know, roadie and when you're a concert worker, you sleep when you can or where you can, whatever works for you, you know. And, like, we we would work load in at eight o'clock, seven o'clock, load it all in. Everything's good. Load it in by two, two thirty or something like that. Check, check. Let's go back to the bus. Yeah. And you might take a nap for an hour or two. 
you know, and, uh, you know, get up for dinner, come back in. And a lot of shows, most shows I'll, you know, cut the openers too. Um, and so I might start working at seven, seven, seven o'clock and do two or three acts through the whole night. And so you got a little nap in the afternoon, do a show, uh, come in, have dinner, do the show, uh, load it out, take a shower, back to the bus, and then, you know, hit the hay whenever you want. I generally don't party too much anymore, so, um, you know, get to sleep. And if you're going to a show day next day, then you're, you know, you're in bed by 2.30 or 3, and you're up by 7, 8, well, 7, uh, generally, and uh, do it again. Walk out of the bus, walk into the arena. Uh, all open, okay, 23 trucks, dump them all out, load it all in, done. So do it again, you know, and then maybe next day off or something. And so load it out that night, drive to the next city, get to your hotel, you know, it depends. If you're going from New York to Washington, then you're there before, you know, the sun comes up and and uh, maybe you're going from, I don't know, Atlanta to Florida or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't get there till noon and it's good because rooms are ready when you get there and, mm-hmm. and then do what you want, you know, stopping, we got stopping and dropping, just dropping your stuff. Where are we going? What city are we in? Where's the best food? What are we doing? Are we getting yeah. motorcycles? Are we getting bicycles? Are we going go-karting? Are you staying in your room? Are you going to play video games? Are you getting yeah. high? What are you doing? What are you going to yeah. do? I don't know. I'm not leaving my fucking room. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it's it's every one of those and all of those things, you know. Right. And, uh, well, man, I, I mean, you're not going to go to Big Ben today. You're not going to take yeah. the boat down the 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 river to to Big Ben again. You're not going yeah. back in the city. Yeah. No, man. I'm just staying out here. We're at the Intercontinental Hotel at the O2 Arena, and I'm just getting room service today. I don't want to leave. All right. Well, I'm I'm going to the city. So see you later. Yeah. So, what are some of the favorite things you've done on your downtown while on while on tour? I mean, Scooter Israel, Scooter Downtown Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, in Tel Aviv, we had scooters and just like back alley, down oh, the steps, yeah. up the steps, Jason Bourne style on scooters, <laughs> popping out into a cemetery from the 12th century and then popping around the corner. There's a wedding going on in the middle and we're all like riding scooters and it's like a James Bond, Herbie the Love Bug scene and like... <laughs> Oh, and then it ends up at the Pink Pussycat, the strip club in the north end of Tel Aviv. And yeah, yeah. So that was a good day. Yeah, uh-huh. I remember that one for sure. But uh, there's a lot of good ones, you know. Like recently, we, we were we got to San Francisco. I found us electronic assisted bikes. Mm-hmm. We all dropped our bags, jumped in an Uber dropped off at the bike store, got on electric bikes, drove down to the waterfront. It was the San Francisco air show. And when we got to the waterfront, the blue angels were flying. Oh yeah. And the show started. And so we rode the, rode the coast all the way up to the San Francisco golden gate bridge. Yeah. And the blue angels were flying over us the whole trip. And then we crossed up and drove halfway out on the bridge and they were still crossing over top of us. And they finished when we were out there on the bridge. Wow. It was just like timing is everything, you know? And, and yeah, yeah. I like, an epic day you know yeah uh, yeah and you try so, to play golf too when you tour 
Yeah, some tours you can. Some tours uh, you have a little more time, or if you play like uh, it's a summer tour and you're playing like amphitheaters. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of amphitheaters in the United States where the golf course right beside it are close by. So so there's there's times when I play on a show day. You know, I wake up and golf course is next door. I be able to go and play and come back and you know go play at six in the morning and be back at 10 30 11 and my stuff's just rolling off the truck and loaded in and that's pretty cool yeah totally cool but huh. less and less even right now i haven't had a good golf tour in a couple of years everything's too busy too big the shows are too big and take too much yeah. time to, to to load in and load out you know yeah. So we talked mm-hmm. earlier about, um, you know, uh, some of the artists that were cool to work with because you got to go all over the place and artists that have a certain amount of discipline that you respected. Uh, well, who were just the most fun people that you've toured with? What are your favorite artists? Who, who are the guys and girls that just make make doing this this business, working in this business uh, all the better? I think my favorite person, artist, just all around Keith Urban, who just coincidentally today played a show last night at a drive-in in in Nashville for first responders. He's the best there is. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I walk up, see Keith Urban right now. He's like, Johnny, give give me a big hug. And Mm -hmm. he's a monster musician, the most authentic, uh, caring person all through and through. So he's great. And you guys, I remember by one point, you guys had done like fun videos and stuff, behind the scene videos and stuff on his tour that looked like, it just looked like everybody really loved the guy and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, cause he's just great. He's a good person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody that works there is, is great people as well. Yeah. So who else would you like to work with? I love Maroon 5 as well. Mm-hmm. Good friends with a couple of people in the band and those guys like to play golf on their days off. Mm-hmm. Um played golf in Morocco at the King's course there with them and a few, you know, uh, PGA in Florida and a couple good places. So yeah, they're great. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, a great tour also can be the people you work with behind the scenes too, not necessarily mm-hmm. just the artists, you know, cause yeah, realistically we see the artists less than we see everybody else you work with, you know, and sure. So your day-to-day people, the office people, the bosses, the management, you know, all carry weight in saying who you like and who you don't, I suppose. But Yeah. Like a moving city, right? Working on a tour or a, the circus. It's just it's such a huge team of people and from all different walks of life, like, you you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we would have 100 on the tour, like with Drake. And then each day we would... Uh, pick up anywhere from 120 to 144 locals to help out mm-hmm. too. So we'd have, you know, 200 yeah. plus people helping out the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who, who are the crazy fun artists to tour with the, the just kind of the wild cards that make, make it interesting too. Oh, well, you know, I mean, uh, or can you be like that anymore? But, you know, or are, are yeah, the, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure. Like, I don't think there is anybody crazy, I think, that I've been with of late. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, like last summer I was with Adam Sandler on his comedy tour, the Fresher tour. Yeah. And 
I was never, I've never watched Adam Sandler movies and I wasn't a fan. And the guy in person is great. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you want to go sit with him in the cafeteria and he's going to crack jokes and you're going to laugh at like that. But I've already seen the same character done in five movies. You know, Mm -hmm. just a different, and it changed my perception of him. I love the guy in person, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was cool. And, uh, well, and you probably, you, there's probably some, you, some shit show acts too, that you, maybe you hear stories about and you're like, you know, I'm going to pass on that one and go with this guy instead. You know, uh, 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 it's happened before. And I actually took a tour. I won't say which one it was that I heard mm-hmm. was a tragedy and it turned out to be great. Yeah. And it was great. Some people are like, I figured out why they're like, there's no, we're not getting any information out here. We're not being managed well, you know, and they're not, telling us what to do. And, mm-hmm. and when I, you know, after sitting with it for a little bit of time, I was like, well, you know what? I turns out I don't like being told what to do. And this one's perfect. <laughs> when, the, when the bus leaves, I get on it. And when yeah. the bus stops, I get off it. And I already know what day there's a show. So I'll be there. And that's all you need to tell me. Yeah. And, and we had the best time ever. You know what yeah. I mean? Nobody told me what to do anytime. So it was great. Yeah. What do you see yourself doing in 10 years from now? What do, what do you see yourself? I don't know. Do you think you'll still be touring? Uh, you know, Dave, I don't know. I, I love it enough to say it's certainly a possibility. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll have to just see how everything shakes out of this. Mm-hmm. Is it a young man's game? Could you tour at 60? I do know people at that age, sure, that are. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of management people it still occurs you know and i think it's probably a product of there's some people where it's just like ah oh, it's over and i gotta do something but there's a lot of people and especially if you got to a certain level like to, to pivot to an absolutely new career at 50 55 years old and mm. uh expect to maybe make the same amount of money might be difficult you know right well it's even tough to say what what uh the entertainment business or the live music business is going to be like in a year from now two years from now five years from now i mean we really don't know right well fuck if they don't you know i mean it's tough to believe anything right now yeah if the vaccine comes around and everybody can get vaccinated for it there's no reason things can't bounce back to you know obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of decimation in the world with the economy and different types of businesses but concerting per se people are going to be dying to go to a concert and we'll do whatever they need to do to do it so yeah i hope that it just bounces back as simple as that really you know you know blinna and i really we love grant c live music we just especially there's nothing better in this summer like you've worked this you've worked all the facilities in, in toronto and stuff but there's nothing better than going out to a show uh, in the summer, uh, at, it's now called the Bud Stage, you know, the amphitheater right there. Look out, you can see the C&E going on, beautiful weather, sitting outside on a blanket or whatever, whatever at an amphitheater, watching your favorite bands. Um, there's just nothing better than that. Yeah, I have, you know, I have the same overall sentiment with it, except I'm sitting in a different place at that building. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm looking out at you as you're looking up at me. Mm-hmm. Uh and enjoy it in the same way. Like, yeah, hell yeah. I love being there with all the people and, uh, you know, fireworks show and yeah. good, hey buddy, good concert, you know, and catering and, oh, yeah. 
miss catering so bad right now. It, well, look, when everything works right, uh, it's magic. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just, that's all it is. It just doesn't get much better than that. So hopefully we'll get back on, uh, on track and we'll be able to, uh, you'll be able to get back on tour and, and work with uh, some of your favorite artists and uh, we'll be able to show up in amphitheaters and at Massey Hall and at uh, the Scotiabank Arena and, and, and uh, be able to check out all our favorite bands again. Hopefully that happens pretty soon. I want to uh, uh, thank you for, for being on the show. Thank you very much for uh, spending this time telling me about some of your stories. You've definitely lived an interesting life, my friend. I don't think that's going to change any time because you're really, uh, you're really a guy who's uh, who's always looking for the next adventure. So uh, um, take care of yourself during this downtime and uh, keep yourself busy and keep your mind busy because it can be difficult. Uh, but uh, hang in there, brother. And thank you for being on my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. You've always been such a great friend to me. Yeah. Thanks. You too, Dave. Be safe and be safe and say hi to your wife and you all be safe down there. Yeah. All right. Thanks, man. You've always been uh, really good to me. And I always really appreciated that when you come to town and stuff and invite me out. And I always have so much fun meeting up with you and going out for drinks after. It's always been a real pleasure. So uh, thanks for that. Much love to you, my friend. And just uh, be safe. Yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you. All right. All right. Cool. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Hayes. Love that guy. Years ago, while backstage watching a a show that Johnny was directing in Toronto, I commented to a shared friend of ours that Johnny was certainly living his life to the fullest. To which my friend Sean commented without missing a beat, Johnny is the coolest guy I know. I tend to agree with that comment. Moving on. This is a short story told by my good friend Richard Garner. Time for another installment of... Please don't try this at home. Hi, my name is Richard Garner, and this is my story. At some point in the 80s, in Ottawa, a bunch of friends and I were on our way to a Ottawa Rough Riders game, and they were actually announcing a new mascot. Wild Thing was the name of this mascot. We didn't know this and probably didn't care much. We had, you know, had a few pre-drinks and showed up at about halftime. In those days, we didn't actually pay to get into the games. We knew a way to sneak into the games through the Civic Center, the adjoining arena beside Lansdowne Park. That took us through an underground area that sort of snaked through a bunch of tunnels and then came up at field level. And in this area, there was the former visitor's dressing room, which was no longer in use because the, both dressing rooms, home and visitors, had been moved to the other side in a recent reno. So we said, I wonder what's in that dressing room these days. And of course, curiosity got the best of us. We decided to check it out. Lo and behold, hanging in that dressing room on that day was somewhere around 10 different mascot outfits. Started to become clear to us that this mascot launch of Wild Thing was in fact also some sort of mascot party at halftime. So it didn't take long for us to essentially look at each other and figure out who was going to be the person that was going to throw one of these on and go out. I drew the short straw, cut to 
Within minutes, I'm in the OC Transpo Owl costume, making my way to field level. Get up there around the time that they are about to announce Wild Thing, and uh, sure enough, song comes on. What are you gonna do when you're dressed as a mascot? And that song comes on, you're gonna dance. And that's what I did. Of course, by this time, a bunch of our friends in the stands knew what was going on. Everybody had a good laugh. Except the security guard who, out of breath, ran over to me and asked me what I was doing because he was with the person who was supposed to be in that outfit. I responded by saying, I don't know, I got a call late that I had to show up, somebody was sick, etc. This guy says, wait here, I'll be back. Of course, I didn't wait there. I took the mascot outfit off and ended up watching the second half from the stands uh, with a couple of beers and a great story. This is Richard Garner, and that's my story. Thank you, Johnny, and thank you, Richard Garner. When Richard says he and his buddies were good at finding creative ways to see a ball game, he wasn't kidding. In 1993, when Joe Carter hit the series-winning home run that allowed the Toronto Blue Jays to claim their second World Series title, a few young guys I know jumped the outfield wall to start the party early. One of those guys was immortalized in baseball history as he followed Joe Carter live on TV as he rounded the bases for home. That young man was Richard Garner. Thanks again also to Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all other jingles and stings that appear on this show. Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And finally, thank you for listening. Until we meet again. Everybody's had some adventures. Everybody's had a few close calls. Everybody's got a story. What's yours?